The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts. Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, we've got a very special guest, Kim Betancourt, who's Fannie Mae's Vice President of Econ- Economics and Multifamily Research. She identifies trends in the sector and comes up with an understanding for the future of the housing market. And I think it'll be very informative and, and helpful for everyone listening today to um, kind of learn more from an expert in, in the industry regarding the economic condition, which I know is a hot topic nowadays. So Kim, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much. Um, I'm happy to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, I do want to just say a word up front. I need to start by letting you know and all your view and all your listeners know the views I share with you today are my own and they're not necessarily those of Fannie Mae or its management. You know, my expectations are based on assumptions. Probably not a surprise to hear that, uh, as most <laughs> economists are. Uh, they are not an indication of Fannie Mae's future business or results, and the impact of future conditions on Fannie Mae will depend on many factors. Okay, we got the legal disclaimer out of the way, so now we can Perfect. now we can chat. <laughs> well, great. Well, could you start by telling me a little bit more about your background in the industry and how you got to where you are, and then um, please touch on your first milestone in real estate if you if you can as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I would say that um, I started out uh, not expecting to be in real estate at all. So uh, when I was in school 100 years ago, uh, I actually wanted to be a school teacher. And so I uh, majored in history and I was going to be a school teacher until I actually tried student teaching for one year and realized I hated children and teaching. And so, <laughs> uh, and, and of course, that's a joke, folks. Uh, I have my own children and I barely like them. But anyway, uh, yeah, so I just decided that, you know, teaching wasn't for me. I had come from a family of teachers um, and uh, you need a lot of patience and just, a, you know, it's a God bless those people. That's all I'll say. And so that was not for me. And so I decided to go to grad school uh, instead. And uh, I was in grad school and we had the, um, the 1981 and 83 recession hit. So I needed to find a job. Uh, I was still in grad school and I got a job working at a mortgage bank through a friend of mine, his sister worked there. And so I was only going to work there for a year to finish up grad school because I could walk to classes. I had evening classes. I could walk to uh, school after uh, working hours to go to my classes. Uh, but lo and behold, after I had gotten my, my graduate degree and I was working there, I, I got bit by the real estate bug. That's what I like to say. And mm-hmm. I just was fascinated by it. And I was lucky because I got started. Uh, working at this mortgage bank. It was part of the, at the time, the largest bank in New Jersey, but this was the mortgage group. And we did everything. We did construction loans. We did all kinds of commercial real estate. Uh, We did some single family. And I was in a great spot where I just learned a lot. Uh, I had a great boss. 
who answered all my really dopey questions because uh, I didn't know anything about anything. And uh, he was super helpful and uh, uh, was a mentor for many, many years after that. Sadly, he passed away uh, last year. Uh, great miss for me personally, but um, great guy. So uh, just like he helped me, I am always happy to help others. Awesome. Well, that's a, that's great mentality and definitely being able to ask questions, whether they seem dopey or dumb or not, yeah. it's definitely great to ask, ask away. Something right. I've learned. <laughs> Absolutely. Always ask, you know, and there's, I would say uh, most people, they want to help. They want to answer your question and, and give you, and give you some guidance. So definitely always uh, don't be, no matter what situation you're in, always ask questions. Great. And uh, hopefully that uh, still applies today. So um ready to ask Definitely. a bunch of questions from you for sure. So um, first, yeah, could, could you touch on your first milestone in real estate? So, um, you know, I've had so many, but I guess, I guess for me, um, uh, well, I was going to say my most recent milestone was when I got accepted into the counselors of real estate. So uh, for some of your listeners, that's a, that's a, a group of people that have uh, many years of experience. It's hard to get into. Uh, it's really filled with really smart people focused primarily only on the commercial real estate sector. And uh, somebody there once said to me that the one thing, no matter how smart you think you are and how experienced you think you are, when you meet another counselor of real estate, they probably still know something more than you do. And it's so true. It's a great group of people. So I would say that was sort of towards the end of my career to get into that. But my first one, I would say, um, Probably when I uh, made uh, got promoted at Citibank and uh, became a, uh, a uh, you know an officer of the bank and got to participate in a lot of new products that they were working on, um, uh, a precursor to CMBS mm. and uh, working on different um, structures. Uh, at the time, they did their own uh, their own MBS, their private privately placed MBS. This was mm -hmm. all very new at the time. This was prior to the 87 crash, mm -hmm. um, which probably many of your listeners weren't even, maybe I'm not even sure if their parents were born yet. <laughs> uh, but, um, but anyway, I would say that uh, was a, a real milestone for me because it really cemented me on this path for being in real estate. Yeah, well, that's super exciting. You definitely um, learned a little bit about the beginning of um, CMBS. Got pretty a interested in it when I was, you know, reading about the big short and, and whatnot. So definitely um, that's an exciting time. Uh, so great. Well, obviously there's been a lot of changes going on recently um, in the industry. I think anyone reading, reading any news journals, definitely um, seeing things about interest rates, about um, speculations about cap rates and, and everything. But uh, I just want to start by what's uh, what's the, the, general outlook on, on the, the sector nowadays? And, you know, what are some of the key things we got to keep in mind? Right. Yeah. So multifamily, I mean, it's had really strong demand during the first half of 2022. Um, uh, but not that surprising, really, because it's really coming from a combination of a few things, primarily favorable demographics, job growth. We've had job growth right, right through the first half of the year. Uh, rising wages and the increased renter household formations. So, you know, with, with elevated single family housing prices staying pretty elevated in a lot of places across the country, a lot of folks have, a lot of renters have stayed in place 
they've continued to rent. And again, the demographics are, are really on our side where we have the cohort that's most likely to rent are those people aged 20 to 34. So that's Gen Z and some of your younger millennials. Uh, and so that grouping of people that actually the number of them peak in 2024. So with, it's been growing over the past 10, 15 years. So it's created this perfect storm of uh, demand for multifamily. As a result, we expect it to uh, continue for the rest of the year. Although we do expect it to start to moderate a little bit. And that's because last year, you know, rent growth, we estimated rent growth last year to be an unprecedented 10%. Uh, this year, we think it's going to probably be closer to 6 to 7%, but that's still way elevated. A normal average rent growth year tends to be about between 2 and 3%, just to, to give you an idea. And so national chain trends are expected to stay at this above average you know, level over the next, you know, the rest of the year, I would say. Uh, but keep in mind that those multifamily fundamentals, as well as demand, they can and do change. And they vary where, you know, depending on where you are, by metro, submarket, some cases even by neighborhood. So that's that's important to remember. But yeah. probably what your listeners are more interested in is further out in the forecast, right? What is it? What do we think over the next, you know, year, two years, that type of thing? Um, and so we have a more tempered outlook for the sector, uh, you know, over the next two years or so, primarily because of this of stubbornly persistent inflation recession expectations, and there's a lot of new multifamily supply that we're expecting will be uh, completed and delivered over the next 18 months. And, you know, we'll talk about that in a bit. But so, so all those things combined, you know, as well as, as I said, the single family housing prices staying elevated and those elevated mortgage rates, I think they really are convincing a lot of renters by choice that maybe they'll just stay renting a little while longer. Yeah, that's a really um, fascinating point. I, I've always thought about the um, increasing price of housing in terms of like the the value of single family homes being um, definitely something that could drive people to prefer to rent. But now that even if prices go down for homes, um, interest rates are still a barrier uh, regarding the, the pricing of single family homes and the affordability of homes for, for maybe new buyers. So um, that's a definitely interesting perspective. Um, we can get in, more into that, but I think a in, very fascinating trend is, um, yeah, how crazy the rent growth has been. Um, so I kind of want to touch on that a little bit more. How, what, so I guess the historical is um, two to 3%. What has the rent growth been for the past couple of years? And, you know, what are some, or I guess, could you pin down a little more specifically what might be the factors leading to that and why they yes, may not persist. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, so rent growth last year, uh, 2021, we estimated it to be about 10%. But again, it depends who you talk to. There's many uh, other research firms and other uh, data vendors out there that uh, are out there. And um, they've got different numbers. I mean, some of them are as high as 15, 16% rent increases last year. Um, so again, you know, it just depends which, which data you're looking at. But for us, we think it's uh, about 10. Um, and we think that this year, as I said earlier, six to seven, we're estimating rent growth for the first half of 2022 was about four and a half percent. So again, very elevated. Um, but, you know, um, I will say I want to talk a minute about not only those rent growth, 
but I do want to talk a little bit about concessions. And I'm mm -hmm. not sure that a lot of your listeners are always aware of concessions. And what are concessions? They are discounts on the rent, on the asking rent. So sometimes you'll see, uh, you'll you'll go, uh, you know, around town, or you might even see it advertised. Oh, we're giving you one month's free rent, or we'll give, you know, the 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 building might be saying, oh, you know, free gift card uh, for coming in and looking at the apartment and signing a lease. And um, so these discounts can range from various things. They, like I said, they're but they're usually expressed as a a a discount off the asking rent. And so we had seen that in say June of 2020, that about nearly 16% of all multifamily rental units were estimating to be, get, to be offering a concession. So that's like the worst of the pandemic, right? June of mm -hmm. 2020. And so that number had climbed to about, like I said, about 16%. As of June of this year, it was down to just 5.1%. So a mm. huge decline in the number of, of units offering offering concessions. What about the concession rate itself? So that concession rate, again, back in you know June of last year was about 8.6%. And that means about a month's free rent, yeah. uh, rounded up, right? about a month's free rent. Now, June again, it's, you know, it's closer to, you know, uh, 8.1%. So it's up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's down a little bit from June of last year. But what was it pre-pandemic? It was closer to six. Mm -hmm. But the difference is there's just far fewer units that are offering it, right? What did I just say? You know, that, that's only about... 5% uh, of uh, units offering the, that discount. So you can find discounts, they're just hard to find, right? And when you do find them, it's usually like, why would it be so high? Why would it be like a month's free, almost a month's free rent on average? And it's because it depends what's going on in that neighborhood, right? Or what's near that building. Is there a new building going up that's offering you know, a good deal for people? that sort of thing, you'll see that type of a discount. So we had this run up in demand last year, you know, or 2020 to 2021, we really saw the demand climb in 2021 and it's come back down. And we see that because there's just so few units offering those concessions, all right, those discounts. Mm -hmm. And so we've had what, you know, but what's been driving that? Well, it's been the fact that we've got a lot of, pe a lot of people that were coming back to work starting last summer, right? People, the vaccinations came out and businesses opened up and people started going back out. And so people started saying, you know, and then we started seeing this increasing in job growth and rising wages and people had gotten stimulus payments, you know? Mm -hmm. So if maybe they were unemployed, they got the expanded unemployment. Uh, that meant that at the time people were getting that extra um, $600 a week, I believe it was from their, for, on top of their, normal unemployment, a lot of people were able to sort of suck that money away. And when we actually look at the data of the personal savings rate at that time, it was very elevated. People were able to save that money. But once the pandemic started to, you know, sort of, you know, fade a little bit and a lot of economies, local economies started opening back up, people started to go venture back out. And guess what else they did? They started mm -hmm. renting apartments, right? Mm -hmm. And I believe that, you know, it, it appears to me that they used that money that they had saved up between just not going out during the pandemic, you know, getting these stimulus payments from the federal government, 
and other things, and they were able to pay uh, to get these uh, units. And at the time, some people looked really lucked out and got low low rental uh, rates with generous concessions. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's uh, definitely uh, an important aspect to to ascertain that um yeah it's, it's not spoken about as often. So that's um that's very interesting. Uh, but to touch on one of the things you you mentioned, um, so I mean, do you think that a lot of this excess money that has gone into circulation, maybe through stimulus, maybe through, you know, a long period of low interest rates through, um, you know, quantitative easing, how, or would you um, expect any of the cap rate compression or the, um, the increase in, in property values, both single family and multifamily, would you um, attribute that to the, the increase in the money supply um, or like just increase in, you know, consumer, you know, wealth? Um, and then kind of in the future with maybe a reversing of the, of the Fed's um, programs with uh, quantitative tightening and, and other things, um, you know, how could that play out? Yeah, no, I think um, that having that extra money definitely helped. Uh, unfortunately, I, when we look at the data now, a lot of that money is gone, especially for lower income households. Mm. So that is the problem is that people had that money uh, last year. And I think that they spent it on, you know, uh, goods, right? So they came out of the, you know, started going back to work and maybe things started opening up. So they started going back out and going back shopping and eating and that to traveling a little bit and getting that new apartment. And so I think a lot of that money got absorbed. So again, when we look at the data, we can see that if we look at it by quintile, the top, uh, you know, quintile of, out of the top five, uh, fifth quintile, they still have enough money. But when we look at the lower in quintiles in terms of household income, that money's pretty much gone. So mm. I think that people took advantage while they could of getting these rents and getting into units. But now that those increases in the rents are starting to really impact their income because the, the that that savings is gone does that make sense yeah definitely and i definitely thought about that when um you know seeing how far rents increased that doesn't seem necessarily that wages increased at that same rate and then when you compare some of these rental rates to the medium median area income that sometimes it seems a little bit um curious how it's able to you know be sustained and how it may continue to be sustained um so yeah i what are some factors or do you think these factors may contribute to bad debt, vacancy rates, um, rent? Well, let's talk about vacancy rates. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great segue to vacancy rates. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though the vacancy rate declined during the early part of 2022, and it sort of has stabilized as of second quarter. So right now we're pegging it at about 4.75%, which is below the long-term average, the 10-year average for the vacancy rate. Uh, we estimate it to be about 5.3%. Mm. So it's it's below that, but we don't believe that it's going to stay there. And why not? Well, one is we have a lot of uh, new supply that's coming online. Remember I was mentioning that earlier. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of apartments that are underway and they're expected to be delivered this year. And uh, so as they start to deliver, there's going to be more supply and remember those concessions, I was telling you, not many units are offering them. They will start to see that more units will start to offer them because now they're competing with this new supply mm -hmm. and that new supply will be giving discounts. So that's going to impact the vacancy rate. 
And it's coming online just as what? Well, the economy, we're concerned that, you know, starting in uh, early next year, we might enter a recession. So that might slow demand further. So that we believe that's another reason that we think we might start to see that, that vacancy rate creep up. We don't think it's going to be huge for this year. Like I said, we think pegging it right now at about 4.75% for the vacancy rate, I think it might end the year around five. Um, could climb to five and a quarter by year end 2023. But again, like I said, that would still be just a, just around right below that 10 year average. If we look at the 15 year average, it's about 5.8%. So mm -hmm. we'd still be below that. Yeah, but that's a good point about the about the vacancy rate. But right now, even then, that's, that's not that would not be a huge increase to the to the vacancy rate. Yeah, yeah, it's funny that we're talking about these, um, you know, fractions of percentages. But then when you think about how many units that really is uh, across the country that, um, you know, it's a uh, it's not insignificant, even though it's, it sounds like a small number, but yeah, definitely, definitely not the, the huge increase and um, probably a good sign. Uh, so as I want to talk a little bit about um, how interest rates have risen uh, pretty recently, there's been a couple um, 75 basis point increases over the summer, um, which definitely is uh, interesting to, to be entering the industry at this time to just learn firsthand what this means and, and how it works. Um, right. And uh, so definitely wanted to kind of, you know, start by touching on what are interest rates, you know, why is the Fed controlling them and how they translate into cap rates slash property values? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the overall about the interest rates, you know, with, with the Fed, uh, the Fed is trying, as they've, as they've announced, to have more of a, you know, a soft landing, right? So that the, uh, the economy doesn't keep staying overheated and it starts to cool, but we, it doesn't necessarily impact jobs and, and you know, throw, throw the economy into a bad recession. So, you know, that's their goal. But what does that mean for multifamily? And you're absolutely right. It does, it does tie to cap rates. Um, and why does it tie to cap rates? And well, let me explain what a cap rate is for, for some of your, uh, for your listeners. So that's short for capitalization rate. And essentially what the cap rate or the capitalization rate is, is it's the expected yield that an investor uh, uh, wants to receive on a particular property. And it's also used as shorthand for a lot of investors, commercial real estate investors, to indicate risk the potential risk or the implied risk in a particular property. Um, and so we talk about cap rates sort of in general um, because it's a good shorthand for commercial real estate investors to kind of gauge whether they think that a particular property or a property type is riskier than others. So for example, you know, multifamily cap rates, they're running at about 4.7% or so. And office cap rates, which I don't have that data in front of me, but from what I've been reading, cap, those kind of office cap rates, they're running much higher. Um, I believe they're running at, at like, you know, eight or 8% or, or so. So they're running higher. So what does that mean? If you're just a commercial real estate investor, you might say, oh, okay. So if I want to look at the office sector, um, that's going to, you know, that might be a little riskier because that's a higher cap rate versus multifamily because that's a lower cap rate. And so it just is a way for them to understand like, okay, this other investors are perceiving these two sectors to be different in terms of risk, not bad or good, just in terms of, 
of levels of risk. So multifamily cap rates, and what we tend to do is we tend to track them in terms of what are they to the 10-year treasury. So we want to see what they are to the 10-year treasury. Why do we do that? You might remember from your Economics 101 classes that the 10-year treasury or the treasury rates are the risk-free rate. So in other words, you put your money in treasuries and you can sleep at night and you know you're going to, you know what return you're going to get. In multifamily, the cap rate is then tracked to that because that's what that property sector is competing with, with investors. So I'm an investor. Do I want to put my money into a 10-year treasury or do I want to put it into a multifamily property? How much will I get paid if I put it into a multifamily versus putting it into a 10-year treasury? And just like I was talking about the office property before, you know, what is it with I want to do it to a, uh, a office property or to a hotel or to a retail or something like that? So the, uh, the 4.7% or so, and that's been there. It's been a little sticky. Uh, it's been it's been hovering down there, even though interest rates are climbing. So the spread between the 10-year treasury and the cap rates, it's getting tighter. And normally that would be of a concern because you're again, you're like, well, you're getting, are you getting paid for your risk above and beyond what you would be getting for a 10-year treasury? And then clearly investors are feeling pretty comfortable that they're still getting a better deal with multifamily properties. And I believe that it is because of everything we started at the beginning of this, when we talked about what are the drivers, what are the fundamentals? The fundamentals are demographics, right? Employment, rising wages, and elevated uh, housing prices and elevated interest rates. Yeah, and definitely makes a lot of sense. And maybe even you factor in rent growth as a potential reason because i mean obviously all those things influence rent growth but um if your rent is growing that your cap rate is actually becoming higher so i mean i guess if rents are growing versus the prop what you pay for the property so if my rents are expected to grow right that's going to make my property more valuable and so if it makes my property more valuable then what it does is it pushes down the cap rate Mm -hmm. right so rise prices rise the value of the property rises it pushes down the cap rate because now investors are willing to accept a little less yield for more of a sure thing in their mind. Right. Yeah. So that's yeah. something else I should definitely take a minute just to explain to your listeners is that, again, so if you see a higher cap rate, that means that the price is lower. Okay. So Relative little, to the income that the property receives. That's right. So in other words, so just keep that in mind. If you see a higher cap rate, that means a, that indicates a lower price value of the property and a lower cap rate indicates a higher value of the property. Mm-hmm. And the lower people get that confused. So yeah, it could be confusing. Them. Right. Definitely. Because other finance majors learn about equity multiples. It's the opposite of a cap rate where you multiply a number yes. times the, the revenue or the income. Yes, that's correct. So you divide it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. So that's um, definitely illuminating and then i guess the last piece of that little problem or that little question is um how does rising cap rates or how it is um you know how does rising interest rates um more importantly how does that affect the volume of transactions uh, and volume of loans and um just activity in, in multifamily in general yeah right because uh, cap rates would help and drive transactions right property sales transactions and so you know last year 
the data that we receive from Real Capital Analytics, they track uh, those transactions, those sales transactions. They estimated that the uh, multifamily sales uh, was more than $350 billion last year, which is a crazy number, absolutely insane. Uh, because uh, in 2019, uh, they estimated that it had been $193 billion. Mm -hmm. So you can see wow. how much of an increase it was from 2019 to 2021. Um, so thus far this year, uh, running through uh, for the first half of this year, it looks like Real Capital Analytics is uh, estimating uh, those sales were about $150 billion. So that's, that's pretty good for the first six months of the year. We are estimating this year that total sales, we had been saying about $210 billion uh, in our July monthly commentary, which is out on our website. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I would say based on that level of, uh, of transactions, it could be between 210 billion and maybe 230 billion. We'll mm -hmm. just have to see what the uh, volume looks like for the remainder of the year. But that's where we're pegging it right about now. Perfect. Well, yeah, that's um, that's very interesting. And yeah, it definitely seems like 2021 might have been a all-time record in terms of transaction volume. Um, I think oh, 2020 absolutely. was also. Yeah. Well, 2020, the it was it was down quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, because um, when the pandemic hit, a lot mm. of a lot of uh, lenders just sort of, you know, uh, took a pause right, because, right. you know, just wasn't sure what was going to happen. And then it started to pick up and then it really picked up a lot of volume in that 2021 to get us to that to that huge number. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, definitely makes sense. And um, sounds like yeah, everyone was super busy. So when the right hikes this summer happened, um, not didn't seem like everyone was too too worried because they finally got to go on their vacation after crazy <laughs> crazy record numbers <laughs> great so the uh, last thing i want to ask before we get to the lightning round is um you know fannie mae is obviously a huge part of this business um you know most of the people who have mortgages on their houses have have uh your colleagues and you to thank for for the fixed rate mortgages that they get but um so i mean could you just Touch a little bit more on Fannie Mae, what the tell us a, what the mission of Fannie Mae is, and um, you know how that influences the affordable housing um, situation in the country. Yeah, sure. I mean, we, you know, we have a number of different programs that the that the Fannie Mae multifamily uh, group has uh, instituted to sort of help address, you know, uh, the shortage of affordable multifamily housing and access to that affordable housing. So, you know, just this past May, uh, sorry, it passed April. Uh, we, Fannie Mae, introduced our Expanded Housing Choice Initiative, so the uh, EHC. And what is that? It, it provides a new pricing incentive uh, for uh, Texas and North Carolina multifamily property owners that take the HUD Housing Choice vouchers. So, mm -hmm. uh, and what that is, is that allows tenants to pay a reduced rent, and then the uh, HUD pays the difference to the property owner. And so those housing choice vouchers, they help provide housing for low income families, seniors, historically underserved population, people with disabilities, lots of different, different folks. So the Fannie Mae Expanded Housing Choice Program, it aims to make that rental housing market more inclusive and equitable because it expands that availability of multifamily units that accept the housing choice vouchers from HUD. It's a 12-month initiative. 
uh, starting in Texas and North Carolina. And as we incorporate feedback from customers and key stakeholders and market participants, you know, we'll, we'll be seeing if, if that, gets, uh, that gets expanded. Um, as part of that initiative, we've partnered with enterprise community partners uh, to help provide resources that help lenders and borrowers understand the program and then get the most out of the HUD Housing Choice Voucher Program. So you need the, you the two to, together. Uh, the other program I wanted to mention is SIA, and this isn't the singer. This <laughs> is uh, Sponsored Initiated Affordability. If you haven't figured it out, we love acronyms here at Fannie Mae. <laughs> and so uh, the SIA incentives for, is for multifamily borrowers. Uh, we introduced uh, SIA last year um, with our network of DUS lenders, and DUS stands for Delegated Underwriting and Servicing Lenders, so they are Fannie Mae multifamily lenders. And this was part of an effort to help address the nation's shortage of affordable housing, multifamily housing. So what does SIA do? The SIA incentivizes uh, owners to preserve naturally occurring affordable housing and workforce housing. Uh, and what does that mean? What it does is it encourages these property owners to seek Fannie Mae financing. And in turn, they agree to rent and income restrictions for the residents living in those conventional workforce housing. So in other words, these are properties that don't have any kind of subsidies or any kind of uh, you know local or federal subsidies to keep the rent down so th this is just normal conventional housing multifamily rental housing that's out there and so this SIA program is just saying hey if you keep it affordable you know we can give you some incentives to do that and those incentives are what well lower borrowing costs uh, that, that we offer to borrowers who agree to either preserve or create a minimum of 20% of the units in the property, keep them affordable to residents earning less than 80% of the area median income uh, adjusted for the family size over the life of the loan. And that mm -hmm. means that the rents can't exceed 30% of the area median income. And the rent and the income restrictions, they're gonna be documented in an affordability agreement and they require an annual certification. So those are just two that I think are really exciting and interesting and a way to help people now, right? right. To get out there and help people now. It's not something we have to wait. Uh, and this is something that, you know, borrowers can take advantage of immediately. So I, I think it's just great. Yeah, that's very exciting. And I know um, a lot of people listening to this uh, may be able to benefit that or benefit from that, especially, um, you know, maybe getting into the industry, but being passionate about this, this aspect of it, which um, I know is a uh, definitely important thing to think about nowadays. Right. Definitely. Great. So are you ready for the lightning round? Sure. Give me, hit me with your best shot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, apparently this is the hardest one. So um, are you, what superpower would you choose if you could have any superpower? If I could have any superpower. Hmm. Yeah. That's not a question you get very often. Does it? <laughs> um, let's see. I would say, I would say probably invisibility. I think nice. I'd like invisibility. That's right. You know, I'm nosy and I could sneak up and hear what people are saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, see it. It I, comes can to, I can go see some of these borrowers and listen to what they're saying. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So invisibility. There you go. <laughs> right. Perfect. That's a good one. So what's your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most um, in your career? 
Uh, my favorite book. Well, it hasn't helped me in my career, but it has mm -hmm. definitely helped me in my personal life. And um, yeah, and uh, it's probably you're probably going to laugh when you hear the when you hear the title, but it's uh, Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. And you're uh, probably thinking, what the heck is she talking about? How <laughs> could that help you personally? So here's how this whole story is, is that uh, remember I told you when I first started out, I was working in the mortgage uh, mortgage company of, uh, of a bank. And again, remember, this is when I didn't know anything. And so I was sitting there and I sat next to our VP secretary and she was reading this book, Pet Cemetery, during her lunch hour. And she was totally engrossed in it, a little paperback book. And, you know, you got to remember, I'm in grad school. And of course, I think who the heck I am. And I'm like, what are you reading? That's like trash. Why would you read that? And she goes, oh, it's so good. I'm like, it's <laughs> Stephen King. Like, come on. She goes, oh, it's so good. You've got to read it when I'm done. So she gives me the paperback. And I figure, all right, I'll just read it to be nice, right? Then <laughs> I find myself awake at three in the morning trying to finish this book because I'm right. so engrossed in it. Right? And it's a great book. I will tell you, it is all one of my all-time favorite books and it has the best last sentence of any book i've ever read it is just mm. chilling it is just such a great sentence great book so why has this had a personal and in fact of my personal life okay so because of that i start now getting every my hand on every stephen king book i can and mm -hmm. i read every stephen king book and i read all his novels then i read his nonfiction. And in one of his nonfiction, he talks about uh, other fantasy and, and horror and science fiction writers, and he mentions Harlan Ellison. So then I'm like, who is Harlan Ellison? So now I go everywhere finding Harlan Ellison books, and I'm reading all these Harlan Ellison books. So year, a couple of years go by, and now I'm at my next job, and I'm working at Citibank in New York, and the girl... Uh, who sits in, who sits nearby? She comes into my office. We shared offices. Then she's talking to my boss, and she says, "Oh, and I'm going to a uh, a convention this week, uh, next weekend, and uh, they've got all these science fiction writers there. And one of them's Harlan Ellison." And I went, "Harlan?" So I turned around. And I said to her, "Harlan Ellison? Do you know who he is?" And she's like, "Oh yes." She goes, "And he's going to be at this convention, blah blah blah." And I was like. Well, I'd like to go. And she's like, great, we'll go together. Okay, so we go and I meet Harlan Nelson. It's fabulous, it's fantastic. So then he's like, well, I'm gonna be at this other convention. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll go to that. And when I go to that convention, I meet somebody, a, friend, a couple of people and I make friends with somebody. She's, you're probably wondering where is she going with the story? <laughs> and then a few years after that, I've, I made I met this person. We, we ended up being friends. His name was Greg. And I go to a, a holiday party in Brooklyn by myself or with my this friend of mine because I had been dating someone and he dumped me right before Christmas. So now I'm fed up and I'm like, that's it. I'm not, I'm not dating anybody. I've had it. You know, I'm just done. And so she says, great, come with me to this Christmas party. And I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't sound like I'm going to know anybody. She goes, no, no, it's going to be fine. Come with me. I go and I see my friend Greg. I'm like, oh, thank God, somebody to talk to. And who is Greg talking to? This very handsome, tall guy. And I walk up to him and I, Greg says, Ken, do you know John Betancourt? And I said, mm. no, I, I, don't, I don't know John Betancourt. Nice to meet you. And, he, and I said, wow, you're really tall. How tall are you? 
And and of course he's like stammering and he's like, well, I'm about six, six or so. And I'm like, oh, I really like tall people. That's great and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, that turned out to be my husband who hates to be asked how tall he is. And somehow that's the first question I ask him and we still get married a year later. So there you are. <laughs> I was hoping the was going. Answer, a long-winded answer to what's my favorite book. It's all because I started reading that book. If I hadn't read that book, I don't think I would have ever met my husband. So there you are. Awesome. Well, I love it. It's a great story. I appreciate you sharing. <laughs> yeah. You sure it wasn't awesome. the answer you thought you were going to get. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It's amazing. I'm glad you shared. <laughs> Definitely unique. Um, you haven't had many stories that good when it comes to the favorite book. So we appreciate it. So um, I guess what motivates you to continue each day? Yeah, so um, I, I get asked that question a lot. You know, a lot of people are like, you know, I have a lot of friends in my demographic that are like already retired or they're like, why aren't you retiring? What's wrong with you? And I will say what motivates me every day is I learn something new every day. I am in the best job in the world. I love my job. Uh, although maybe we shouldn't say, maybe I shouldn't say that if we have Fannie Mae bosses listening to this podcast, but <laughs> I love my job and I have the privilege of being able to work on and research and learn whatever I want to learn about and whatever the market is going, what's going on in the market and what the business needs to know. And so to me, it just continues my lifelong ambition of learning. And that's what, that's what gets me up every day. It's like, what the heck happens is going to happen today? What am I going to learn today? And help other people learn. That goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning about asking questions. I love to answer people's questions and help them out. And if I, you ask me a question I don't know, I am on it. I will find the answer for you. So that's what motivates me every day. Well, great. Yeah, well, definitely um, motivates me as well, if you can tell by this uh existence of this podcast so <laughs> well, yes, um, absolutely and it's been right. great oh, thanks so what would it, or what advice would you give to someone who has to follow in your footsteps yes i would say uh to tie into that you know uh you know wanting to learn every day is to be curious right you want to be curious be interested what what you, you know what don't you know and what do you want to learn I think if you approach your job and your life with this openness of curiosity and just, you know, not to be corny, but, you know, a wonder of what, what is going on? What, how can I help? How can I be a part of something like this? That sort of that sense of curiosity, it will never fail you. It will get you to read books like Pet Cemetery. <laughs> it will get you to go to conventions and meet interesting people. It'll get you to learn things and go down a path that maybe you wouldn't have gone down if you weren't curious about. It. Yeah. Think about that's... it. I could have been a high school history teacher somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And it does sound I like... get to do this, which is right. fabulous. Yeah, that's a, that is wonderful. That's a great advice, and um. Definitely, definitely something I like to hold, hold true. Um, so I guess the last question, since I put you on the spot, I want to give you a chance for revenge. So um, feel free to ask me anything you want to know about me. Ah, well, that's, what is your favorite book, Ben? Oh, cool, cool, cool. So I'd say my favorite book 
is um, it's Paralandra by C.S. Lewis. Um, it's yeah, uh, the second book in. Choice. Yeah, so it's I wanted to go unconventional too because I have a lot of favorite real estate and business books, but this is um, this one is the uh, one that really struck the um, the awe and the wonder and like they can never can't put it down. Stay up all night yeah. listening to the audiobook or to for reading it because um it's uh it's the first book or second book in a series uh called Out of the Silent Planet and it's written I think in like the 30s um you know C.S. Lewis is a is a classic writer but um he's writing about like sci-fi and these space travel themes like you know taking mm-hmm. a rocket ship to to Mars and he was writing about this before like we had any idea of how it even works maybe even like around the time planes were a thing it's like I don't know how he you know it's just so interesting to think that people envisioned always... all that yeah right and, it's and he's just a great writer i mean you got a great great way with prose yeah he really is and that's the, but the thing that really gets me is that it's a sci-fi book that you know it's but really, it's really an exploration of like philosophy and theology and like just spirituality um, yeah yeah and spirituality and it's just and then like what is good like what is what is good how do you be good and like just all these like you know, you could say biblical themes or religious themes, but it's more just like philosophical moral themes. And it's like a lot of people are, you know, want to read just pure nine fiction to learn. And, you know, sometimes when it's when these theories are packaged in a story is actually where you do the most learning because you can really resonate on an emotional level with the characters and also like envision yourself in the scenarios where you have to be asking yourself these hard moral questions. And I, um, you know, it really is what opened me up to fiction because I used to you know spend most of my time reading nonfiction for for learning where there's just a lot to learn during through fiction and a lot of enjoyment as well so that's why it's uh, important to me and why I love it and I'm going to give you a little plug to my husband's website which is Mm wildsidepress.com and he uh publishes uh many different books on science fiction and fantasy and horror and mystery so and he will He's got stuff back from the 20s and 30s that he's also republishing. So wow. uh, some very interesting things. So for you to take a look at and maybe your listeners as well, a little un, 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 uh, unbiased plug, not really, but <laughs> there you go. Yeah, well, and we'll also give a plug for our Fannie Mae research, which right. you can find at FannieMae.com under the research and insights tab and also on the multifamily tab there. So, perfect yeah that was gonna be yeah, my next question will check out both websites <laughs> definitely definitely well um if uh if where else can anyone reach you if they want to learn more about you or, or connect or um just uh learn explore real estate yeah with, so um, you can find us on like i said on the fannie Mae website but i am also on twitter uh mm-hmm. and my handle is kim underscore betancourt um so you can find me on uh twitter as well and i perfect. do tw- I do tweet out some of our uh, our, uh, our uh, monthly commentaries and uh, some other things that uh, might also be interesting, but also may sometimes cartoons and funny things. So you can check <laughs> well, me out there. Well, I know I will definitely be doing that. Well, Kim, I appreciate you very much for coming on the show. I learned a lot today and this was uh, very fun. So thanks for taking the time to you know inform uh, me and the audience on all this stuff. And um, yeah, keep making milestones. Thank you so much, Ben. It's been it's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. And um, everyone who's listening, if you enjoyed this episode, please go on Apple Podcasts to leave a review, a five star review, and any comments. Always makes me really happy to read those. So I really appreciate it. See you, everybody. <laughs>